Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend of mine asked if I would record myself reading one of my novels as something they would find comforting and familiar in the midst of the uncertainty and anxiety of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'll be reading to you from Perishables, the first book in my five-book urban fantasy and vampire series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka FalstaffBooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y, slash Perishables link. That goes to Amazon. Thanks. Okay, y'all, welcome to the 12th installment of Perishables. I will be reading from part two, The College Town. Let's get right into it. Tim, Everett, and I set off back across the campus, vaguely towards the biology department. Can we just hole up in your office? Tim was speaking to Everett, and Everett pondered in silence before answering. It would give us a view of the back of the biology department, at least, he finally said. But that's pointed the wrong direction if these things are coming from Asheville. What about another office? Or a classroom? No locks, I said. Classrooms in that building don't have locks on the doors. A lab? Everett shook his head. The labs are all in the basement. We kept walking, naming buildings, finding them unsatisfactory. In time, we were standing at the side entrance of the bio building, still having decided we didn't know of a good place to go and hide. Half the campus qualified as a bomb shelter in case of nuclear attack, but nothing had been built to keep grounds of groups of people safe from ground troops. So we turned and started walking again, diagonal to the way we'd come, and in so doing, we started our own unassigned patrol route. Without discussing it, with no one really leading, we began a slow sweep of the outer edge of the main quad. At each point where a walkway branched off between buildings, we would stop and advance slowly down it, checking behind shrubs and occasionally peeking into a dumpster or banging on its side to see if we scared anything. We did two complete circuits of the main quad before we started seeing other patrollers. There were three faculty members from the music department walking close to one another and wielding wielding that long arm thing from a trombone. They stopped when they saw us, wary, but we waved at them, called out, and they eventually decided none of us were the walking dead. I wish I could say the same about that kid who surprised them. He was walking along with headphones on, hands in his pockets, his head down. They had just decided we weren't the enemy when they heard him behind them and spun around. One called out, but he didn't hear them, didn't notice them, and then he looked up abruptly when he finally noticed them frozen in fear in front of him. He opened his mouth to say something, and one of those music faculty simply swung the trombone arm thing around and clocked him with it on the side of the head as hard as he could. The kid went down in a crumpled heap and twitched a little, so they hit him again. All three of them this time. Tim made this muffled <laughs> noise. Ever called out at them to stop, and I ran towards them, but by the time I got there it was too late. There was blood everywhere. A scalp wound bleeds a lot. Way more than you'd imagine. The kid's pulse gave out four seconds after I put my hand to his neck. Nine o'clock at night and we'd had our first casualty from the zombie apocalypse before any of the zombies had even arrived. 
The three music professors looked at me like I was crazy when I shouted at them to stop, that he wasn't one of them, that he had just had headphones on, then turned and ran, just like that, in the direction they'd been going. I had to pull out my phone and try to call 911 to tell someone, Jacobs, I guessed, that there was a dead kid laying in the middle of the quad, but then I remembered what he said about 911 not working. Who do I call? I said to Everett as he and Tim caught up. Tim was puking in a bush a few feet away. Everett was turning from dark brown to light brown, but he got it together enough to close the kid's eyes and kind of straighten his hoodie a little, fold his arms over his chest. We didn't stick around to find out. My voice was strangled. What number do we call? Everett scratched his neck and then walked over to one of the blue-domed emergency call boxes on campus. I heard him make a report to what sounded to me like a static line on the other end before he came back. We'd better keep moving, he said, grave. There's nothing we can do here. I patted Tim on the back while he worked the last of it out of himself and then pulled out a napkin from somewhere in my backpack so he could wipe his face before the three of us kept going, a lot less certain of our route this time. Going north past the Student Life Center, now empty of the all-hands meeting from earlier, we started to run into other groups of three or four people on patrol. Most had a flashlight and nothing else. If you were in music or a janitor or knew how to break into the janitor's closet, then you could arm yourself. Otherwise, you had a flashlight and a cell phone and not a lot else. They were all scared, all going very slowly, creeping along, nervous as cats and less capable. We learned fast that the way to be recognized as a human being was to speak quickly and clearly. If we did that right away, the moment they noticed us, they would eventually stop shaking long enough to say hello back. Going farther north meant crossing Aries Mill Road and then wending our way along the parking lots and sidewalks that ran behind the five senior dorms that were as close to off-campus living as a town like Mount Aries could manage. It was 20 after 9 and we found casualties 2 through 7. Kids who'd thrown themselves out of fourth floor windows. Tim didn't have anything left in his stomach, but that didn't stop him from trying. This time I joined him, one hand on his shoulder while I puked myself empty. Everett pointedly did not try to smooth anything over for anyone else who might find them. Fifty feet is a long way to fall. Pavement does some pretty nasty things to a body from that height. They had died afraid, and their faces showed it. We were walking away a little more hurriedly when we realized that there was singing coming from the open windows of the third floor student lounge in one of the buildings. It was gospely, but very, very white. There was clapping that kept getting faster to rush the song forward. The singing sounded a little desperate. That's the freak's floor, Everett said. This was apparently some subtlety of campus life that I had failed to pick up when hiding in my little closet-turned-office in the non-academic basement of the math building with no name. I wrinkled up my brow at Everett, and he started to smile a little. The Jesus freaks, he said. I blinked at him, then kind of looked around us. You might not have noticed, I started, gesturing to indicate that maybe that was the whole fucking town, but he waved me silent with one hand. No, no, no. That's what they call themselves. They're a club. Freaks with a PH instead of an F. They're kind of cheerleaders for God. He shrugged a little. Like phone freaks? Everett shrugged. What's a phone freak? A kid who hacks phone systems for free long distance. Old hacker hobby. That's silly, Everett smirked. Long distance to Jesus is supposed to be free already, haven't they heard? Tim stared up at the windows like, well, I don't know what the hell he thought would happen at those windows. Maybe he thought the Jesus reeks were working themselves up for a big mug of sayonara Kool-Aid. That was certainly what it sounded like to me. 
We kept going, hurrying a little, eager to get away from the dead and the cheerleaders for God. Another 30 minutes of walking the outer periphery of campus without bringing ourselves to wander into the town of Mount Aries itself took us by some freshman dorms, all silent, and finally the Mac. The doors to the cafeteria were locked at eight every night, but someone had smashed in all the glass and then propped them open with a chair from inside. We could hear a lot of activity inside, some yelling, so the three of us advanced very slowly through the open doors and in the inner doors, which didn't lock, and then blinked back at the bright light of the fully lit cafeteria. In the middle of the part where everyone piles up trying to put their meal card back into their wallets and handle their tray at the same time, between the cash registers and the soda fountain, were three wheelbarrows mostly filled with food. A lot of it was just loose. Hamburgers and shiny wrappers, little bags of fries piled on top of each other, and a plastic bag that had been filled with the big soft cookies from the ice cream bar. No one had been stupid enough to try to loot actual ice cream, so I guess the kids learned something here. The hooting and chatter from back where people normally fill their tray started to die down, and eventually an upperclassman kind of swaggered, that's the only word for it, out from behind the cash registers with a baseball bat over his shoulder. He was young, white, and muscular, with close-cropped blonde hair and a cleft chin that I'm sure charmed a certain type of young girl. Oh, hey, sorry. His voice was pitched exactly at that growing-into-manhood range between raspy and youthfully smooth. He set the end of the bat on the tile floor with an aluminum tong and kept his left hand around the butt end of the handle. We saw three people walk in but didn't know if... He smiled incongruously. You know. He gestured at the wheelbarrows with his bat. Want anything to eat? We figured we'd stock up now while the pickings are good. For how many people is all this food? Everett spoke evenly but distinctly. Now, Professor Marsh. The kid smiled and kind of cocked his head to one side, hooked the thumb of his free hand through a belt loop of his jeans, and let his hand rest near his groin in a way that was weird. The vibe was very, very strange in the room all of a sudden. We're not taking more than our fair share. Everett's eyes did not leave the kid's face. Mr. Murphy, for how many persons is all this food? The cafeteria has plenty back in the freezers, you know. Delivery day was yesterday. They can feed everyone on campus three square meals for the next week, at least. I kept staring at the kid's hand, and I suddenly realized all this subtle or not-so-subtle body language was of flirtation. The hand near his crotch, the way he tightened and loosened his grip on the bat handle, the smile. I abruptly wondered if Everett had ever crossed that line, gotten involved with a student. It had to get lonely in a town like this. I'd never really thought about it before. Everett's eyes still were on the kid's face, though. How many? The kid shifted a little and all the flirtation fell away like fabric sliced in two. He was just an arrogant jock again, all of a sudden. Well, there's 14 of us on the team, plus girlfriends, of course. He smacked his lips in satisfaction after that. I couldn't read all the signals, but I could see them being sent. Of course, Everett said evenly. Take no more than is appropriate for the number. Take no more than enough for two days. He said this very firmly. Be sparing in what you take. Remember that we may not have power for long. Eat the perishables first. Everett looked for some reason like he could murder the kid where he stood, then turned for the door. I turned to follow him, and Tim eventually did so too, but said, shouldn't we take some for ourselves? No, 
Everett replied. We can come back on our next trip. They'll be gone by then. I don't think it's a good idea for us to stick around and force a confrontation with the baseball team at the moment. His face was really grim and I finally found my voice. That kid, I paused, cleared my throat. Was he, uh, flirting then with the hand and the belt loop and the, you know, stuff? I knew he was already, of course, but I was watching Everett for his reaction. He smiled stiffly. Young Mr. Murphy tried last year to have me fired on grounds of immoral behavior. There's an old clause in the university handbook. I think he was hoping he could stick his cock in my direction long enough to make me forget. The smile was very brittle. I don't care that he used such obvious tricks in an attempt to win my favor temporarily. More disappointed, honestly. What bothers me is subtler than that. He knows he and his little friends are stealing. He hoped to charm me into failing to turn him in, but the thing is, he doesn't realize our situation. I nodded and felt the color drain out of my face. That there is no one to turn him into, I said. That we really are on our own up here. That anyone who might care on a normal day is too busy trying to figure out where to put the bodies of kids who threw themselves out of windows. Everett nodded. Those young men basically run everything in student life, or could if they bothered. They know that, but that's pretty much the limit of their understanding. It's the outer border of the world they inhabit all the time, emergency or no. They'll soon enough figure out the absolute vacuum of authority we could be facing, and I'd just as soon not be in the room when they do. Tim, long out, let, out, duh. Tim let out a long, slow whistle. Ruing. I think that's what this feeling is. Thanks for joining y'all. Next up will be installment 13. Ooh. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. The theme music is Plucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution license at ccmixter.org.